Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, my name's Ty. I'm one of the pastors here. It's an absolute joy to be here with each and every one of you. You know, I say that every Sunday, and it's true every Sunday. It's really good to be together, right? Yeah, it's just fun that we get to be together. Uh, we should do this like seven days a week. It would be even more fun. Some of you are like, nope. I'm like, I get it. Cool. Hey, uh, I got a few announcements before I get started. Number one, GPS, known as Grace Point students, are having a pancake breakfast coming up this Saturday from 8 to 11 a.m. And here's where you can get involved. You're going to eat breakfast that day, right? So why not come down here and have the students serve you? There's going to be pancakes, sausage, bacon, eggs, um, all kinds of great breakfast stuff there. It's all you can eat. Did you just hear that? All you can eat, bacon. And so what, what, what we're asking for you is that if you can, if adults would pay $20 per plate, that would be great. If you can, it's kind of a suggested donation. Uh, and kids pay $10 per plate. If you cannot, come anyway and just give what you can give. Uh, cash is welcomed. It's easier to take cash on that situation. And all the money goes to their student camp, which is a big deal for students to get away from here a while, be together, and be with the Lord for that week in the summer. So make sure you come, be a part of that. It's a great way to support our students. If you have any questions about that, you need to reach out to Mo. It's mo at gracepointvegas.com. So reach out and find out more about that. Second thing is we have a mini conference coming up on Saturday, November the 19th from 8 to 12 uh, with our, our friend here, Dr. Gary Brashears. He's the Dean of Theology at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, and just a dear, dear brother and friend of ours. Uh, we just want to welcome you to this. It is free. There will be no childcare, but he kind of has a, a specialty, and his specialty is spiritual warfare, and it's really, really good and applicable and biblical. So I really want to invite you all to this. Make sure you show up and join us for that. And then tomorrow, we got something big happening here on property. What is it? The Fall Festival Trunk or Treat. Uh, I hope you've already signed up, and we've got all the candy that we need. I heard we collected, what was it, like 1,500 pounds of candy? So our goal is 1,000 pounds. We almost got a ton, so next year we'll need a ton. Uh, but we got 1,500 pounds of candy, uh, and we're all ready for this. So make sure if you're signed up, you show up early and you're ready to go. Uh, and if you're not signed up to do anything, uh, that doesn't mean you're left out. Why not come down and join us? It'd be a great time to see each other and just a great time to hang out with our, our neighbors around us. So don't miss that uh, tomorrow night. Got it? They'll also have like food trucks out here. So, you know, come hungry and you go get some food over there. Sound good? All right, let's get started. Um, I, I want to do something fun to begin with. I, I want you, as you're sitting there, I want you to count on your fingers up to 10 believers, Christians by name, who you are close enough that you can share a prayer concern with. So I want you to think of 10 people, 10 Christians, 10 brothers or sisters, if you're a Christian here with us, uh, 10 people, up to 10 people that you can count by name on finger of who you can share a prayer concern with. So do that right now. Just on your fingers, think of Bill and Jane and Sue. Like, go through it real quick. Okay, now uh, I want you to reveal that to either someone with you or just hold it up like this. I'm like, this is, these are how many people I can share, how many Christians I can share a prayer concern with. Go ahead and hold that up right now. Okay, lot, 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 I see a lot of hands, a lot of hands, a lot of hands. Okay, cool, 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 cool. All right, fun. Isn't that great? You have people you can share a prayer. If you don't have a lot, uh, meet somebody around here. That'd be a good thing. Get in a community group, why not? Second question for you. Now I want you to count on your fingers up to 10 non-believers or 10 uh, 10 people who are not Christians by name who you are close enough to share the gospel with. 10 people who are not Christians that you are close enough, not you know by name, not just people that you know their names, but that, that you're close enough that you can share the gospel with. Now, do that on your fingers now. That you can share the gospel with. All right, now hold those up. Okay, all right, put them down, put them do you, do you notice a difference? Why is that? Well, today we're continuing our teaching series through the book of Esther. And I don't know about you guys, but the book of Esther has been just a crazy fun and very exciting and, and a lot of learning adventure for us all. Uh, if you've missed any of it, you can go back to our website or go back to YouTube or just read uh, the book and just and figure out what's going on there. But last week, we saw that God turns evil in on itself uh, and due to Mordecai, uh, he was a Jewish person refusing to bow down to the king's number two. The king's number two, his name was 
Haman. Uh, Haman convinced the king into giving him power in order to sign a new law in act over the whole Persian empire. And this new law was 11 months from that date, they signed the law into, into, into place. 11 months from then that all Jewish people of all 127 providences were going to die. They believe this is about 15 million people. Well, Mordecai, he had a younger cousin. Her name was Esther. She was the queen. She risked her life and told the king that she was Jewish and that Haman's plot was a plot against the king. Actually, we learned that last week. The king was enraged and got so mad that he skewered Haman on Haman's own 75-foot gallow, like a big old spike, the one that he was saving for Mordecai. And at this point in the story, we think that this is the end of the story. The bad guy, or at least the baddest guy of them all, has died and the good guys have won. But at this point, we still have that, that little law in place. That law that says 15 million Jewish people are going to die. This irreversible law. The king himself cannot change this law. So the Jewish people are under the sentence of death. The Jews are under the sentence of death. The people are under the law of death. There's nothing that they can do about it. If nothing is done about this, they are going to die. If no one acts, the Jewish people are going to die. Death is coming to the people of God. They're going to die unless someone... Do you see where I'm going with this? Are you, you you're picking up what I'm putting down? You smelling what I'm cooking? I want this to be seared into your mind that the people of God are under the sentence of death. I want you to remember that as we go through this whole sermon because it's super important. So what's going to happen? Pay careful attention. If you've got a Bible, go to Esther chapter 8. That's where we're going to spend our time. Esther chapter 8. If you do not have a Bible, we say it each and every week. You're going to need a Bible here. We love our Bibles. We lead from our Bibles. We learn from our Bibles. We teach from our Bibles. Uh, we read our Bibles. We found out about Jesus in our Bibles. And so we want you to have a Bible. We have them in English and Spanish up here at Center Point. If you want a fancy Bible, we have them out there as well. You can buy one. Or if you have a smartphone, you can download version, and uh, you'll see on there Grace Point Vegas. Click on that and all the fun stuff will pop up. We'll be in Esther chapter 8. You guys ready? You good? You awake? Yeah. You will be in a minute. Verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. So basically, Esther said, hey, this is uh, Mordecai. Let me introduce you to him. It is my older cousin, father figure, and he is Jewish as well. Verse 2. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So uh, according to ancient historians, whenever a traitor was executed, all of his property went back into the kingdom, into the, the, the property or the propriety of the king. And so the king gave uh, Esther Haman's estate, uh, and this would include his land, if he had a house or if he had homes, it would include that as well. If he had any servants, it would include them. It would even include his family. Then the king had taken uh, the signet ring, the power of attorney, off of Haman's dead cold hand and put it back on his. And then when Mordecai came back in, he put it on Mordecai's, which means Mordecai is the second most powerful person in all the Persian empire in this moment. He kind of is like the vice president or the prime minister. Now think about that from Mordecai's vantage point. Uh, Mordecai was kind of like a low-level government official, and now he's like the second most powerful person in the land. But before he had no access to the king, because remember early on in the story, he couldn't go past the king's gate. Now he's kind of like the king's greatest advisor. He is the number two to the king. He is right there with the king. At, at some point, he was probably uh, very, very poor or just didn't have a lot of wealth. And now he's super wealthy because he has all of Haman's stuff. And now he has all this power and all this influence. How did this happen? How did this great reversal happen? Well, James, fast forward into the New Testament, James 4, 6 says this, but he, that would be God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so I think this is part of the great reversal of God. He opposes the proud, and the proud in this story was who? And the humble was who? Right. 
And the same is true for us as well. God will oppose us if we are proud. I heard this a long time ago. It stuck with me and I believe it. God has a plan A for each and every one of us. And God's plan A for each and every one of us is humility. And sometimes we do not get with God's plan A, do we? And so God has a plan B. You know what God's plan B is if we don't get with his plan A, humility? Humiliation. (laughs) You ever been there? Oh, I've been there many a time. And like, it it turns us back to God's plan A, but this is what our scripture is telling us. Now, uh, why, or I guess, why was Mordecai elevated like this? I think Jesus had something to say about that. Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Who, who in the story was bragging about themselves and how amazing they were to their, wi- to their wife and their 600 sons and all the friends and around? Who was, who was bragging about themselves? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, some of you hear that and like, yeah, that sounds great. Now, I, I must give you a little bit of warning around here because God wants to exalt some of you. Some of you are humble. I know you, like you're super humble people, and God is putting you in a place of, uh, of authority or a place of leadership within your work world or within school or within your neighborhood or something like that. And there's a part of you that's like, I, I just can't do that. I'm afraid, I'm afraid that I would fail, and you feel unqualified. You say, I'm just not qualified for that. Can I tell you what? That's the first qualification of leadership right there that you feel unqualified for it. You know what we usually call that in pastoral ministry? Humility. Anyone who says, I'm ready for ministry, I want to be a pastor, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow your roll there, man. Slow your roll there. And so like, step up. It's time to do that. God has put you in that position. Now, if you think back on the story, Esther's request has not been fulfilled. So she goes to the king and asks one more time. And notice what she's doing now. She is the queen. She has power. She has authority. She has influence with the king. Notice whose behalf she's going on. Look what it says in verse 3 of Esther 8. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to advert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot he had devised against the Jews. You know, that whole plot, that irrevocable law that 15 million Jewish people are going to die. And so what she's doing, she is being an advocate. She's being a mediator for those without power, for those without a voice, with those without any influence or anything like that. She's begging on behalf of those under the sentence of death. She's going to the king, the one who has power to do something perhaps, and begging on the behalf of those who are under the sentence of death. Are you picking it up? Okay, I want you to keep going with me on this. Verse 4. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, kind of like his cane there, it's like his little staff sticky thing, Esther rose and stood before the king. It was basically, a, you know, it's like, hey, you can, you can make the request, is what he's doing. In verse 5, here's her request. And she said, if it please the king, and if I found favor in the sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, I mean, she's, she's kind of putting it on there of like, hey, if it's good by you, if I look good to you, and all these things. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite and the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the providences of the king. What is she doing here? She's asking the king, she's requesting the king, she's begging the king to do something about this law so people will no longer be under the sentence of death. So think, think about it in the context. She has been saved Now she wants to see other people be saved. She has been saved from under the the penalty of that death, that law of death. Now she wants to see other people who are under that law, that sentence of death, be saved as well. The sentence of death no longer hangs over her. Now she wants the sentence of death to no longer hang over the people. She is not satisfied herself with being saved. She wants to see other people saved as well. Do you see? Are you getting this? Yeah, in the country, we have a saying called beating a dead horse. Have you ever heard it? (laughs) Nay. All right, here we go. See, she could have, like, gone back to the comforts of the palace, laid in her, you know, super queen-sized bed, and turned on some pay-per-view and ordered some in-room service and all that, and just went about queening if she wanted to do that. But she, she didn't. She could have thought, you know what, I, I'm, I'm saved, I'm not going to die, 
and I'm the one that did all this work, and I'm the one that made all this happen. Somebody else needs to make it happen for themselves. All these other people need to figure out their ways that they can be saved as well, or someone else is going to have to go stick their neck out on the line. I've already done it once. Why would I do it anymore? Hey, did you know, did you know that over 100 firefighters every year in America die uh, in the line of duty? Did you know that uh, it's close to 200, probably if not more now, 200 police officers die in the line of duty every year doing their job? Hey, did you know that during 9-11 that over 400 uh, first responders died running into the buildings and trying to help out in the Twin Towers? They died. Why? Why would they do that? Why would men and women risk their lives in order to save someone else? Why would they do that? Probably the reason why is because they couldn't bear the, 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 the responsibility or bear the feeling or bear the thought that someone else is going to die and they could do something to stop it. What about us? This guy by the name of Horatio Benar, he said this. I want you to hear this. The question, therefore, which each of us has to answer to his own conscience is, how has it been the end of my life and ministry? Has it been the desire of my heart to save the lost and guide the saved? It is under the influence of this feeling that I continually live and walk and speak. Is it for this I pray and toil and fast and weep? Is it for this I, I spend and am spent counting it next to the salvation of my own soul, my chiefest joy to be the instrument of saving others? Hold on to that. I want God through his word and through his spirit to build tension with this. Go back to the story. I want you to hear Queen Esther's heart when it comes to the people living under the sentence of death. Verse 6. She says to the king, she's pleading with the king, how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? She cares so deeply for the people. She's like, king, I can't stand it. I can go no further. I can't go about my queenly duties and responsibilities and life, living in this plush palace and all that. When the people are under the sentence of death, I can no longer do it. I love people and I love your people, God's people. And so I, I, can, I can bear, I have to do something about it. You know, if you go later on into the story of the Bible, there's another guy. Later on in the story of the Bible, this other guy who loved the people so much that he goes to God and basically says, I would give up my salvation so other people may be saved. You know what his name is? His name is Paul. So you don't say Jesus real quick. His name is Paul. <laughs> Paul, Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying my, he's not exaggerating. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed. Meaning, he says, I wish I was damned to hell. That's what a curse means. I wish I was accursed and cut off from Christ. Removed. Loss of salvation is his word right there. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, he cannot. You cannot lose something that was given to you that you didn't earn, so he can't. But he's saying, my, my heart is so stirred that I would give up my salvation. I'd give up my seat on the eternal bus for someone else, for my brothers and my sisters. I would do that. Hold on to that. Let the tension build. Let the tension build. I'm, I want the Lord to paint this picture for us. I want us to see it in all the most unlikely places of the book of Esther. Esther 8, 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he has intended to lay hand on the Jews. And so what? basically he hears the request, and the king's like, Look, 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 I, I, I killed the bad guy, and I gave you all the stuff. Uh, what else is there to do? Well, he, then he kind of dawns on him, verse 8. He says, But you may write as you please with regards to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict, law, written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now, if you remember last week, last week, uh, when the king found out about Haman's plot, he went out into the garden because he was so mad, came back in, had him hanged or, or skewered on the big stick, uh, the 75-foot big stick there in, in Haman's yard. And it, the text says that the king's wrath was abated. 
And what does that tell us? Basically, the king in that moment was, he was cool. Like, hey, I'm fine now. Like, all this is over. Uh, I know there's like this pesky little law about 15 million Jewish people dying, but hey, you know, that's how life goes. And he was kind of just kind of cool and just moving on with it. Which when you hear that, it sounds so harsh. It sounds so cold. But when we kind of reel back and look at our own lives, if we're not careful, we kind of live the same way. As long as I'm okay, and as long as I did maybe just a little, well, I'm not worried about big picture things. I'm not worried about the survival of other or others or helping others out. It's kind of the, the attitude of, of the king right here. Now, what are they going to do with this? Well, what the king is telling them is like, look, you can write out a new law. You just can't do away with the old law. And I'll give you the power and the authority to write a new law, but you better write it good. And what are they going to do? And we have verse 9. Now, uh, for some of you Bible uh, trivia people, uh, verse 9 is the longest verse in the Bible. And some of you are like, I don't believe it. And you'll Google it. I'm like, cool, man. Way to be like that. I don't mind. That's great. You're like, I'm a Berean. I'm like, ah, eh, you're just skeptical. It's cool. But anyway, do it. Uh, you'll, you'll do it anyway. But verse 9 is the longest verse in the Bible. I Googled it. Verse 9. And while I was reading this verse, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so long. I wonder what the longest Bible verse is in the Bible. And I Googled it, I'm like, oh, it's this one. The king's scribes, these were the, the writers of the law. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict, that's the law, was written according to all that Mordecai. So now Mordecai is telling them what to write. Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. That's a big kingdom, 127 provinces in total, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. Because Haman's edict cannot be changed, a new edict must be created. Where only death in Haman's has been decreed, now you're going to see in a moment that in Mordecai's, there's some defense. And so they rounded up all the scribes and they're going to start to write and this is what they're going to write. Verse 10, pay attention to some of the wording because it reminds you of the first one from Haman. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with this king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted courier, which is, this is literally where the Pony Express kind of got their, mind, their idea from. It's a true story. Read the history of it. Letters by mounted couriers riding on the swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, detail we all needed right there, saying that the, I just don't know why, but it's important, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to do what? To gather and defend their lives. Pay attention. To gather and to defend their lives. That's very different. To destroy, to kill, to annihilate, remember that's language from previous, any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. So this is them writing to the Jewish people they can do all this. And on the day throughout all the providence of King Hasherus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Okay, this sounds a lot like, not word for word, but a lot like the old one. I want you to look back at the old one that Haman wrote in Esther 3.13. It's going to sound very similar, and we're going to talk about why. Uh, letters were sent by couriers. No, I hear, I hear you flipping. I'll wait. That's a beautiful noise. Make it loud. Like, angry flipping. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's providences with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And so the first law was, hey, you get right to kill all the Jewish people. Now, a little bit of speculating right here. I could imagine when this first law came out, people were like, oh, okay, that's what we're supposed to do. Okay, cool, 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 I can do that. And they start kind of eyeballing the Jewish people and kind of sizing them up. They start eyeballing their properties. Like, man, I, you know, I saw that backyard like swing set you got going. I want that. That camel is lit. I love the way you, you know, decorate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive that thing. And like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to take your stuff. I can only imagine that people were preparing to do that. I mean, they're out there, like they got the kids like sharpening their swords and all that kind of stuff and like getting, getting ready to attack. So this new law, you can't, or this first law, you can't undo it. 
but when they issue this new law and this new law goes out, what the people are hearing is this. They're hearing that the king, because remember it's signed by the signet ring of the king, they're hearing that the king has a new attitude towards these Jewish people. That, that's kind of this, this law is kind of trumping the old law or it's laying over the old law. And, and, and so they're seeing a different attitude from the king. They didn't need like uh, a lawyer to come out and, and explain this to them. Uh, th- this new law basically says, hey, don't attack the Jewish people on March 2nd or whatever it is, like whatever the date is back then. That's kind of what the second law was saying. Now, when we read this, the Mordecai's law, the second law, the second edict, when we read this, it's interesting. It says something like, hey, make sure you kill all the women and children as well. We should probably do something with that, shouldn't we? Should we, we should discuss that, shouldn't we? You ever, you ever had that uh, coworker or that person in class or something like that say, hey, I'm not down with the Bible because in the Old Testament, God looks really angry. He's just killing a bunch of people, women and children included. You ever, had, you ever had that conversation with people? It's a great conversation. People should have that conversation and figure it out why. I'm not going to answer that one now. That We'll save that for another message. But I'll answer in this text what's going on because this text is very specific. Why does Mordecai write women and children as well? And the question we need to ask ourselves is, is God okay with the way this is written? What are we going to do with it? Well, I could stand up here and say, hey, guys, there's a difference between killing and murdering, and I could kind of parse that out. And that might be kind of true, kind of not true. I don't know. Uh, but if you notice the first law, that's why I had us go back and read it. And the second law, they almost read word for word, right? I mean, they're, they're very, very close. It is essential, though, for them to do this. Why? Uh, it's essential that the Jews are to be given the very same terms that Haman gave their enemies. There's this needed symmetry between the two laws. It requires it. The counter law, meaning uh, Mordecai's law, also gives the the Jews the right to plunder the enemy's goods, just as Haman's law gave them the right to plunder the Jewish people's stuff, right? And so the reason why this is so important is, in legal jargon terms, the laws are to be equal to almost cancel one another out. And so I think it's legal jargon somewhat within the text there to where he wrote children and women as well to equal the two laws out. Now, if we skip ahead, if you start reading uh, chapter 9, have you read chapter 9, chapter 10 yet? Have you been through it? Well, you will. And uh, one of the things you'll notice in 9 is that some people ended up attacking the Jewish people, but not a lot of people. A lot of people just left them alone. But some people were ready to attack the Jewish people. The Jewish people attacked them back and they won, spoiler alert. And it says in the text that, that they only killed men. It doesn't say any of the Jewish people killed women or children. And it says nothing about the Jewish people plundering their goods. And so that's why I'm going to land on in this text. I believe the reason why it's there is to equal out the first law. Make sense? So the question is, is God okay with this? And my answer for this section right here, I would say, yeah, because I think it's it's invisible hand leading Mordecai and leading Esther in all this to preserve the Jewish people. And I think that law had to be written equal across the board. That way it kind kind of undoes the first one. Make sense? Didn't get lost in that? Some of you are like, don't care. Cool. Got it. All right. Verse 13. Sometimes you hit those hard texts. I think it's good to talk about those because like, we just read over them like, hey, kill the, kill, kill the women and children. You're like, whoa, wait. I think it's good to talk about it. Verse 13. A copy, was, uh, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all people, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemy. So like there's going to be like billboards and all this kind of stuff is going to be put out. Everyone's going to hear about it. Verse 14. So the couriers, they wrote it. The couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, uh, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in the Susa, the, the citadel. I did a little bit of research. Um, it's, it's subject for review. But uh, the time period, remember, it's going to be 11 months until this decree happened, right? The first one. Remember, they rolled the dice and they were like, oh, 11 months from now, we're going to kill all the Jewish people. And so uh, I did a little bit of research and I think we're about two months in. So in, they're hearing about it in, in two months. So they have nine more months left until the day happens. So when we read chapter nine and 10, this is nine months later. Make sense? That, that'll make sense later on. I just want to stop right there and say that. Verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, uh, Kentucky Wildcat colors, am I right? It's a God thing, not me, but uh, the Bible says it, with a great golden crown and a royal robe of fine linen and purple, 
and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Everybody had to bow down to Haman, but when they, when they see Mordecai, they shout and they rejoice. And what a reversal it is. Remember earlier in the story, Mordecai is walking around in like that scratchy uh, uh, sackcloth and he's got ashes all over him. Well, that sackcloth has been replaced with royal garb. The ashes on his head has been replaced with a crown. Who does that? God does this. This is exactly what God is doing in the story. And what about the people? What happens to the people when they hear this good news? When they learn that the decree of death is no longer hanging over them? They're super excited. Let me show you the text, verse 16. The Jews had light, love that, light and gladness and joy and honor. That's what happens when you get good news. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command of his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Don't miss this last line. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. <laughs> now, let's rewind a little bit in that verse 16. Uh, what was their response when they heard good news? It was joy. The, the sentence of death has been removed, and so the natural inclination is to be glad, to be happy, throw parties, and eat a lot of good foods, and drink the good wine, and do all the, like, yay, it's gladness and happiness. But that last line is curious to me. The last line says, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fears of the Jews had fallen on them. So people were so enthralled by what was going on with these Jewish people. They're seeing them rise to the top. They're seeing them being happy and celebrating. They're seeing the joy of good news. They're seeing the joy of their salvation. And they're like, I want some of that. Like, like, like what, 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 sign me up for that. So the question is, were they really converted? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, they could have been, it could have been an in vogue thing where like, hey, it's cool to be Jewish right now. Let's be Jewish, everybody. Well, you know, whatever that entails. Uh, maybe. Uh, but I'm going to take it at face value and say, Pagans turned away from their idols, their idolatry and their false god worship, and turned to the one true God, Yahweh of the Old Testament. And I would just say, thanks be to God on that. Hey, uh, side note, just for some Bible people out there. Uh, you ever read the book of Acts? And in the book of Acts, it calls these people God-fearers or worshipers of God. You ever notice that? I think that's what this is. It's people who are, who are there, people who are, are worshiping God, uh, and they're like, they're coming from different religion or different something like that. And now they worship, they're a convert is what I think that is. I could be wrong, maybe speculations. But anyway, the Bible says right here in the book of Acts that many people did this. Many, many people. I love how Jewish Mordecai and Esther are up in the middle of pagan society and pagan culture and pagan people. And in the end, people got saved. I mean, Esther and Mordecai slowed up, started off a little slow, didn't they? And, and they, they got a little dirt on them along the way, didn't they? But in the end, we see, we see God like doing what God does, saving his people and saving people. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. Now, this doesn't end the story. It ends our text for today, but it doesn't end the story. We've got a couple more weeks of this. There's a lot more to happen. Don't miss that. But I have one thing, just one thing I want us to consider today before we leave. And I really, really, really need you to lean in on this. I really want you to consider this. You've been hearing themes and tones of it throughout the scriptures. And I want to plead with us as a people, plead with us as people to hear this and to do something about it. So I want to give you one statement. That's all I want to do. Here's the statement. Don't be so content with your personal salvation that you have no concern for those without it. We'll say it one more time. Don't be so content with your personal salvation that you have no concern or no compassion or no care for those around you without it. Listen, listen, listen. If you are saved if you are a Christian, man, what a time right now where you sit in your mind and in your heart to, to, to thank the Lord. Thanks be to God. And, and, and the, the reaction from that or the response to that should be praise. It should be thankfulness. and should be just 
just so, so grateful that the Lord would save me and the Lord would do this to me and Lord, Lord would, you know, his spirit would live in me and I would get to be in heaven with him forever and he'll remove sin and, and any punishment, any condemnation I deserve. It should be just great thanks. We should throw a party. We should have joy. We should be the most joyful people in the world. But Christian, let's not take our salvation as an opportunity for us to look indifferently on a dying world around us. The opposite of love is not hate. It's just indifference. It's just, I just don't care. Just like the story where there is a sentence of death in the land, right now there is a sentence of death in our world. This world is sentenced to death. It looms. It hangs over humanity. Death, don't believe me? Let's do a little Bible, uh, a little walk through the Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. I'll put it on the screen for you. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That means there's infectious disease around us. It's in the land, it's in the world, and it's in us as well. And it is sin, and the Bible says it is death. We are under the sentence of death. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from what? The law of sin and death. And so ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the law of, of sin and death has been in place. We are all under the law of sin and death, and God has not revoked that law. Just like the king in our story, that law still stands. The first half of Romans 6, 23. For all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin, what we get for our sin, the paycheck we receive is what? You can say it. It's death. That means we will die. We're all going to die. But that means we'll have the second death as well, and it's worse than the first. It's an eternal punishment. God's furious wrath, his righteous, perfect wrath. It's hell. What can save us from that? Just like in the story of Esther, there needs to be another law. Look at the second half of Romans 6.23. But, <laughs> be glad for the butts of the Bible, people. But, but, B-U-T, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How does this work? Well, God basically obeyed the law of sin and death when he gave Jesus to bear our sins and die on the cross. The sin and death was in play, and God was like, okay, this is, this is the law. I've created, bam, and Jesus sits under it. He bears our sin and death on the cross. But then the Father raised him from the dead and put a new law in effect that makes it possible for sinners to be saved. It's possible for us to be saved. That's good news. Do you hear it? Do you rejoice in this good news? Are you happy about this good news? Do you think about this good news? Do you remind yourself of this good news? Do you tell other brothers and sisters about this good news and your community groups and all that? Do you sing about this good news? Don't you love this good news? That was your part. Don't you love this good news? Okay. But do, do, you, and I, do, do you and I tell people this good news who are still under the first law? We got good news, right? We all agree to it. Well, 32 of you did, but we all agree to it. Our, do, do, why are we, we have, we have the, the antidote. We, we, we have the second law, the law that supersedes that one, the law that will save us from death, the law that will remove sin and, and, and death from us. We have that. Why do, why, do we not tell, why do we not tell other people about it? I had you at the beginning of this message. I set you up. This is what pastors do. I just set you up. I set you up. I said, hey, tell me 10 people that are not Christians. You can count on your hand that uh, you can close enough to share the gospel with, and, and I can see the look on your face. Why? Because I know the look on my face. It's not just you. It's me as well. Uh, if you were with us, I think, three weeks ago, we, I, I posed a, two questions at the end of the message. You guys remember it? I posed this question. What kind of risk, faith, was I willing to take earlier in my faith journey that I no longer take? Remember, anybody remember that? Remember that? Anybody? You remember it? Give me a little nod. You remember that? Remember it? Okay, cool. Uh, th this question was posed to me a while back, uh, a few, several weeks ago or whatever. I don't even know. Uh, and I have been, 
I have been wrestling with this because I, I, I'm going to admit to you something. I'm going to admit to you something. That um, early on in my faith, I, I got saved when I was 23, and I worked in a factory. And like I was obnoxiously telling everybody about Jesus. I just was. I just tell everybody about Jesus. I could turn any conversation into a conversation about Jesus. I could turn any sports illustration into something about Jesus. I was always, I mean, like, it was pretty bad. I mean, it was, I was just like, if I saw a telephone pole that didn't look saved, I'm going to tell it about Jesus. It just <laughs> like, well, I got, you need to know too. Uh, and really, man, just really, really pursuing holiness with all that I had. Man, just pursuing holiness. And I tell you, man, this question has just, has been haunting me of like, why, what happened? Like, I, did, like, I, did, I lost my missional edge, guys. I lost my evangelistic edge. I just, I just don't see myself befriending non-Christians and telling them about Jesus. And I kind of see my, I can excuse it away and be like, you know, but I stand up here every Sunday and Jesus is everybody, Jesus is everybody. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, my call is to go and be with the people outside of here as well and share the gospel. This is what God initially called me to in ministry was preach the gospel, not just in here, but in everywhere. I've lost my missional edge. Maybe, maybe you have too. Maybe you have lost your missional edge. And like, if you were to say, hey, there's 66 books in the Bible, Ty, uh, which would be the least evangelistic book? I'd be like, maybe Numbers, Leviticus, definitely got to be Esther, right? And yet God is using this book on me to turn my heart back outward to lost people and have a heart for lost people. I mean, when you think about what Esther's doing here, she's, she's concerned about people under the sentence of death. She has risked her life to go to the king multiple times. And at any time, he could be off with her head. I'm done with her. I got these other ladies over here. At any time, and yet, no. She went to the king this king who had very little power in the grand scheme of things, but he had some power and begged for the lives of others. When do we do that? We have a king with unlimited power. We have the king who actually saves people. He's the one that does the work. And yet, if I'm really honest, how often do we go to the king and beg him on behalf of other people? Do we beg him to save our unsaved parents? Do we beg him to save our unsaved siblings and co-workers and, and students in our class or our fellow friends or neighborhood people that we get to meet every once in a while, do we beg the king on behalf? God, save them. God, do something. God, use me. God, give me words and opportunity. Do, do we do this? Sometimes we think our salvation is the end of all things. Like, well, I'm saved. I'm good to go. Run out the clock. See you in heaven later. It's like, no, it's just the beginning of the journey. Like, this is what we're called to do. If not careful, we act like when we get saved, we got Willy Wonka's gold ticket. I'm sorry for all the other chumps don't get to go through the weird factory. It just is what it is. Ah. Earlier, I showed you where Paul was so con concerned for his fellow Jews to trust Jesus as Messiah. He was willing to give up his, his own salvation. It's like, man, have we, ever, have we ever thought that? We ever prayed that? We loved people so much and understood salvation so deeply? I mean, can, can we bear the thought? Can we bear the thought of people dying and going to hell? Because if we can, then we must not believe in hell. I mean, you think, I, I've got family, and let's just be honest, I've got parents, I've got family members that didn't own Christ. Can I bear the thought of them dying and going to hell? How much of our time, energy, and efforts is consumed with people knowing Jesus, telling them about Jesus? And I know I can hear in, in, in the heart, it goes like this, like, all right, all right, re relax, bro. Calm down, calm down. You know, we'll get around to it. Or like, hey, Ty, don't you understand? We got busy lives. I got stuff to do and kids to go to these places. And I got money and finances and friends and fun and vacations and work. I got all these things going on. But why not use those things as intentional ways to reach people uh, for Jesus? Why not use every avenue and every aspect of our life? Is that not what the Lord did to us? That someone, someone came to us, listen, I'm here. You guys are out there. Like, I'm going to join you out there, but like, you have jobs. You have schools. You have neighborhoods. You have places you frequent. Those are places for us to go and do kingdom work, to join in what God is doing. Those are natural places. Look, 
We can't be the only, the only thing here that is evangelistic is us opening doors say, hey, you better come see us on Sunday or you're going to hell. It can't be that, right? That's not enough. It's not enough. There are so many people and you know them, they would never step foot in a church, am I right? And so, but you're there and God has you there for a reason, for kingdom work. Let's, 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 let's do some quotes. Martin Luther, good old Martin Luther. He says, the kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not be with the bad, but the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you are doing, you would never have been spared. You see, this gospel that we have is to be shared, is to be spread. Yeah, I got a few more minutes. Hey, look, we are, so, it's political season. And my mailbox has had enough. Have you ever got those things out and actually look at them before you throw them in the recycling? It's fear. We're losing something. We're losing this nation. We're losing, we're losing our faith. We're going to lose the soul of the nation. We're going to lose our faith. And if we don't do these things or vote for these people, we, we're, we're just not. So we need to protect our faith. We need to protect Christianity. We need to protect the gospel. Listen, listen, listen. Mm -mm. Don't protect the gospel. You know what protect the gospel means? That means we keep it right here, we take it home, and we do nothing with it because you know what? We got to preserve it. We got to make sure it's just right and preserve it. The only way to protect the gospel is to share the gospel. Have you read history? Did you not know it didn't happen on this continent? It happened on another continent and somehow it got here? You know why? All those people didn't stay together. They, uh, they, they left, they scattered, and they shared the gospel as they went about their everyday lives. We just can't stay here together and like try to polish the gospel up. We got to share it. Uh, one pastor said it like this, laborers, meaning us who share the gospel, are like manure. You know what manure is, right? <laughs> Poo, okay. It stinks when they are all in one place. You have to spread them out to do any good. <laughs> we got to go. I, I, I could hear some, some of my theologians in the room, and I'm a fellow theologian with you, and you're like, well, Ty, you know, if you really understood theology and understand that, you know, uh, you know, the soteriology of the Bible, meaning like the, the, the way in which God saves. And many of you out there may be reformed like me. I have a reformed theo theological bend. You can read all about that or come to Covenant Partner class. I'll teach you all about it. Uh, but you may have this weird uh, way of looking at reformed theology. What we'll call it, I'm going to drop the C word, hyper-Calvinism. And you're like, well, you know, what's the use of going out and telling people about Jesus because Jesus is going to save the elect anyway. So really, there's no use of us going out because what can we do if God's going to save them anyway, right? You've heard this argument before, haven't you? Yeah. Well, one, uh, if you don't do it, you're disobedient and I, I fear for your soul. Okay. Two, uh, this whole conversation was coming up to an old theologian by the name of A.A. Hodge, and he said this about God's sovereignty. I'm going to turn it because it's beautiful. He says, does, does God know the day you die? The person answered, yes. Has he appointed that day? Yes. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? To live. What happens if you don't eat? You die. Then if you don't eat and die, then would that be the day that God had appointed for you to die? And then he says, quit asking stupid questions and just eat. Eating is the preordained way God has appointed for the living. And I would say, quit asking stupid questions about that and share the gospel. Sharing the gospel is a preordained way that God uses the people to come to faith. It's immortal souls that pass us each and every day. Immortal souls heading to everlasting splendor or everlasting horror. You must share the gospel. How do you share the gospel? I got just a couple minutes. I'll rattle off a few thoughts on how do you share the gospel. Number one, pray. Pray. Man, let's, let's, let's just start making lists of lost people in our lives, in our sphere, not people who live on the other side of the world. We can pray for them as well, but like the lost right here, right now, and let's just start praying for them. Let's just pray. Pray, pray, pray. Number two, follow Jesus. You, you follow Jesus. Your set apartness, your joy in the Lord, that, that'll, that'll, that'll come up. You having hope when things look hopeless in your life, that'll come up. Number three, normalize talking about Jesus. For some reason, when we talk about Jesus, we're having conversations, sports, TV, ha, ha, ha. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you. Je like, whoa, we're like, what happened to you? Normal. You know, you know how you normalize Jesus? 
Start talking about Jesus in your life. Start talking about Jesus to yourself. Start talking about Jesus to other Christians as well. Just normalize talking about Jesus. Number four, look for, on, look for conversational on-ramps. Just look for conversation. When people are talking about like their pain and their struggle, and, their, and you can just relate like, ah, I've had pain and struggles and all that, and it's only by God's grace that, that got me through this, and here's what happened, and here's what he did. Just look for conversational on-ramps. Um, I don't know what number I'm on. Whatever, number five, D. Uh, be okay with not having all the answers. Some of us are so afraid to share our faith because like, they're, they're going to they're gonna ask me, why does God uh, allow the killing of children and women in the Old Testament? It's okay to say, I don't know. You ask me a question as a pastor, I'm going to look at you sometimes, the best answer I can give you, I don't know. I just don't know. We can find out together, but maybe we're just not going to know. It's okay to not know some stuff. But number whatever I'm on, be able to share your story. I think it's like number six or seven. Share your story. Share your story of like, this is what life was like before I met Jesus. This is how I met Jesus. This is what life is like now with Jesus. And be honest about it. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't make, like, don't make promises that, that you can't deliver on. Like, hey, if you trust Jesus right now, you're going to get that job and you're going to get that million dollars and you're going to hit the Powerball and that love of your life, she's right around the corner. Don't do that. Don't do that. Hey, be honest. Like, hey, you're probably going to follow Jesus. You're probably going to suffer a bit. Yeah, probably so. I mean, that's what he did. And so we'll just follow in his suffering and you know, it, it, he'll be with us. We'll grow. It'll be the greatest thing in your life, suffering. I mean, just to be honest with people. Um, and then lastly, whatever number I'm seven. I say this loosely. Invite them here. But don't make that the only thing you do. Invite them to your home. Invite them to Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. I, like, don't say, please don't see this as, we, as Americans see things now. Like, hey, take them to the professional. No. Bring them here for sure. That way they can be a part of your, your life and your world and the world of, uh, of us together. But invite them into your home and share the gospel with your mouth. Read Romans 10, man. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Hey, guys, I love you, but like this, this, don't be content with your personal salvation that you have and you have no concern for those without it. Let us not be that church. I don't want to be that church. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that Christian of like, I'm saved. Sorry about everybody's luck. Figure it out on your own. Someone came to me. That means one of us has got to go to somebody else. Can you imagine what that would look like? Could you imagine the rejoicing that would happen just like in the story when people have the sentence of death removed from them and there's a sentence of life over them where they can have life now? Like, like don't you have life in Christ right now? That was your part. Yeah. Don't you want other people to have that life as well? Imagine what that would look like. Let me pray for us. And uh, we'll go to the Lord's table together. Father, have mercy on us. We have been disobedient at times and not shared your good news. We have not treated it as good news. We have not seen it as good news. We have become distracted, easily entertained by anything else. Father, forgive us. Have mercy on us. Father, we request two things. Lord, would you give us opportunities this week? Give us opportunities, please. With our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, where it's undeniable that you are doing this. Would you move in the people, God? And number two, would you give us desire to see people saved? Lord, give us opportunity. And Lord, give us desire. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.